When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Jason Silver. Jason is a former COO turned life strategist and startup coach. And in this conversation, he shares his journey of self-discovery and how he applied startup methodologies to transform his life. He reveals the wake-up call that made him question societal expectations of what productivity and success are. And then we dive into the experiments that he conducted to challenge those traditional assumptions and led to him having higher impact and greater joy in his everyday tasks. We also get into some of those experiments that didn't quite work, but you may have heard of in the past. We also talk about three key topics We talk about the importance of considering how you want your work to feel, leading to a more enjoyable and fulfilling experience when you're working. We also talk about effective communication using techniques like the brief back to avoid miscommunications that hinder productivity. How many times have you gotten derailed in your productive workflow because of a miscommunication? And then also we talk about preventing burnout and achieving a better work-life balance, all while maintaining a high level of productivity at least according to whatever measure of success you define productivity to be. So if any and all of that sounds interesting to you, you're going to love this conversation with Jason Silver. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show Jason Silver. Jason, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List. Thanks, it's on Eric. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I know that you've got a pretty unique perspective on productivity and, you know, the term work-life balance, though some kind of hate that term. (laughs) It's like, hey, if I'm at work, am I not still living? I guess some would argue that's debatable, but still. (laughs) But I know you've got a unique perspective on this whole productivity thing. And I'm curious if you could share with us a little bit of your journey to that perspective. Go as far back as you want to go, just because you're working on a book currently, and and I'm very interested. I've seen pieces of it and gone through it, and we've had chats. But uh, let's get the listener up to speed in terms of where you're coming from on this productivity perspective. Yeah, cool. Go way back, engineer by training. I did an undergrad and a master's degree in engineering. Started off thinking I was going to be pretty technical. Like I really love problem solving. Started working as an engineer, working on kind of hardware, software, realized pretty early on. I was actually most interested in like how you build teams around a really good initial product idea. And I really wanted to go into business. I really didn't want to go back to school. I had kind of done enough of that. So I did my first real entrepreneurial thing. And I wound up finding a startup who I said, Hey, like, I'd love to come here and do something in business with you guys. There's nothing in my resume that says that, you know, I can do this, but I feel like I can. Let me come here. I'll work for free for a little bit. 
you know, it'll either go terribly, no harm, no foul, we'll part ways, or it'll go well and, and we'll kind of keep going. I got very lucky. The CEO there really put me in a lot of situations that were way above my pay grade. You know, I got the sit here, don't say anything, take notes treatment, but I got to be in all sorts of really great conversations about fundraising, partnership deals, commercialization. So I got what I would call kind of like a practical MBA. Company got bought. My job became a little bit cookie cutter. I had a software hobby. Can't see the quotations on the podcast, but picture me giving quotations on the side. It's probably taking up like 30 hours a week. So I decided, hey, let's go do a company. This will be great. I can do this. No problem. <laughs> you know, that blissful ignorance you have the first time through. I hit like a double or a single. You know, it was no Google, but it was a good first attempt. My business partner wanted to run the business as a lifestyle business. And I was really keen at the time to go the whole VC route and raise a bunch of money. So we split very amicably. I took a piece of IP we had started thinking about, but weren't doing anything with yet. He ran the day-to-day of the existing business. I carved off a new business, raised money, built a team, about two, three years, crashed a company, which, um, you know, happy to talk about. Very challenging experience. One of the best experiences in my life, though, wouldn't trade it. That's probably a whole conversation for an entire other episode. But my confidence was kind of all-time low. You know, crashing a company is doesn't make you feel great that you're good at a lot of stuff when something like that happens. And I got very lucky again. One of my investors whose money I almost entirely lost called me up one day. He says, hey, I think you should go and talk to this team. They're doing some interesting stuff. And that was the folks at Airbnb. And so I got to jump on at Airbnb when they were out of the startup stage, but still early on, you know, hundreds of people. I got to experience that ramp of hundreds of people to thousands of people and what growth looks like at that pace, which was awesome. Had my first kid on the way. I was on an airplane all the time. I had, you know, folks on my team reporting into me from all over the place. I wanted to be based in the same city. So I did the only thing that felt logical to me at the time. New kid on the way, jumped and joined a a startup. And I used startup with its like purest intention. Like there was a slide deck, a financial model, no customers, two people. Like it was kind of ground floor in the artificial intelligence space. And uh, I joined there as the COO, built the company up over a chunk of years and reached um, one of these moments that unfortunately some people have, you know, in their lives. I wound up getting a phone call one day, it was a February, to let me know that my sister was in the hospital. She wasn't doing very well, got diagnosed with very late stage, rapidly advancing cancer. And by that June, she passed away at the age of 37. And it was obviously you know, the most challenging thing that had happened to me in, in my life up until that point. And, you know, if I could bring her back, I, I obviously would do that. But a small piece of that was in some very, I don't know, odd ways, kind of like a gift in my life where she taught me some lessons through the way that she chose to live her life and how she passed that I don't think anybody could have explained to me with words. And it, it forced me to take a really hard look at my life. And that was the first time when I really questioned, like, yes, I'm ambitious and there are all these things I want to accomplish. Why am I choosing to work in this particular way? Do I have to be running at 150 miles an hour all the time? Is it true that I have to give up on a bunch of stuff in my life in order to accomplish things I want to accomplish at work? And I never really loved the ideology that, like, you know, you can have a more full life if you just accept less at work or vice versa. I just never really questioned it. You know, I always thought about it as like, I'm working really hard now and I'm trading off on some life stuff now so that when I earn some magical amount of money in the future, I won't have to work this hard and I'll scale back and I'll enjoy my life more. When my sister passed, it was like, well, wait a second, you might not get there. 
And aside from that, if you look at the data, not a lot of folks pull back later in life when they've been going that hard for the majority of their lives. And by that point, you know, there's a lot of damage that can happen um, in your life outside of work. Well, and some people don't even recognize that, wait, you don't have anything left to then pull back to because you've burned bridges or strained things for so long. Yeah, yeah. You know, you never know, you know, but I think for me, it was like a wake up call to just it's not to say that hustling and running 100 miles an hour is wrong. You know, it's not for me to say that there's a right and a wrong way for anyone to live their life. It just isn't on purpose. Right. And for me, it really, I got shook and I realized I'm working this way because of a whack load of assumptions that I have that say, I have to do things like this in this way. And I just started to challenge all of them. So basically I, I started doing all of these different experiments to help me understand, like, what's this assumption I'm making about how I'm working or how I'm choosing to live? Does it need to be that way? What can I try to do differently? And what would the output be? And the output I was looking at is like my impact and how I was feeling overall. And the more I experimented, the more my team started to see the experiments I was running, the more I started to share it with folks. And the more I did that, the more they started to pick up on them. And I got to watch them also trying out the tactics that were working for me because I would discard the ones that didn't work and I would keep the stuff that was working really well. And by doing this, I kind of got much more clear on this mission that I now have in my life, which is to help other people enjoy doing the hard things in their lives. What I realized is I had basically lost the joy of doing the hard things. Like I was doing lots of hard things, startups, building companies, things like that, but I wasn't focusing on how to enjoy it. And I learned that there's a systematic way that you can enjoy the things that you're doing and do a better job at them at the same time. Like this trade-off between you know, work and life, grind or not, like it's kind of fake. And so the more I did this, the more I really wanted to be very in line with this mission statement. I wound up making uh, a pretty hard choice, but uh, felt like the right one to leave my position as a COO of the artificial intelligence company. Love the company, love the people. I just wanted to put all of my attention on like, how do I help people enjoy doing the hard things in their lives? Now I coach and advise startup founders and their teams on how to build great companies that people love to work for. And I do it primarily on the output of this experimentation. And as I was coaching folks, I started to get a lot of feedback on, hey, Jay, like we don't hear this in a lot of places. You should probably write this down. No, 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 no. Like I'm not an author. It still feels weird to say I'm writing a book. Long story short, I'm writing a book now. It's called Quietly Crushing It. It's about how to basically help unlock big impact at work without the burnout in life. It's based on the tactics that I learned through my experimentation and the coaching practice afterwards. And each chapter basically covers like a common workplace challenge, why it happens, how to think about it a little bit differently, and like what you can specifically do to help it in, in your life with whatever's going on. Super excited about it. Um, I'm working with one of the editors from Atomic Habits on the book, which is like super great. You know, it's making the product awesome. I'm learning a ton. Publishing timelines are interesting you know they go on a on a time scale that is uh, i'm learning to, to work in and so also pretty excited by the time this podcast lands i'll launch my new newsletter what we're doing there is i'm taking a tactic from the book and every week i'm sharing an article which is a two-minute read like a really quick short bite to help you basically do better or feel better at work um, every week anyone that signs up there which you can do at my website which is qcibook.com stands for quietly crushing it so qcibook.com Sign-up's free. Anyone who signs up is going to get that kind of weekly tactic straight from the book, in addition to uh, a free preview chapter that will help you with a very specific technique to accomplish five days' work in four days. So 
Two things stand out to me that I think are very interesting. Number one, you talk about helping people find the joy in doing the hard things. And most productivity people or most people when they're talking about productivity, when they talk about doing hard things, they come at it as like, okay, let's chisel this down. Let's break this hard thing down into smaller, easier things. I'm curious what your perspective is as to people finding joy doing things that are hard. Is it a sense of fulfillment? Where exactly are you going with that? Yeah. Listen, it's like, it's kind of unsexy and it, it seems very obvious when you say it out loud. But if you want to enjoy work more, you have to do more things that you enjoy on a regular basis. And so where we put a lot of our attention traditionally is what are we trying to accomplish? To talk about productivity, people, project plans, whatever, taking a concept, breaking it down into bite-sized bits. That's absolutely necessary. And that will go in kind of column one for me. What do we need to do? The column that we're often not as intentional about is how do we want it to feel? along the way. Sometimes it needs to feel like a grind. Hey, we've got to launch this product or get this project out 80 hour weeks for two weeks. It's going to be tight and tough. You know, everybody buckle up. This is how it's going to feel. But we've been explicit about that. Other times we might need to accomplish a thing. There's 27 different ways to make this thing happen. If you just take a little bit of time to talk about what path that we could take would involve the most enjoyable activities for me and my team, you can accomplish the thing that you have to accomplish and you can do it in a way that you're much more likely to enjoy. It's just like when you go somewhere, you look at a map, right? You put a destination into Google Maps, you have tons of choices. Point A to point B, fine, you put that in. Do you want to walk? Do you want to take a bus or public transit? Do you, are you going to drive? Do you want to avoid tolls? Do you want to take the most economical route? You're still going from A to B, but you're taking a second to tell Google Maps how you want the journey to feel for you. Do the exact same thing at work. And you can take this very esoteric concept of like, how do I enjoy my day to day more? And you can make it highly practical. I love giving presentations. Great. The output of this project is going to be a presentation instead of a Excel sheet. You know, whatever that thing is for you, just taking a little bit of time to say, I understand what we need to do now to get from A to B. How do I want this to feel? That quick moment of reflection and looking at that aspect of the work that you're doing can really lead to a lot more joy. And it doesn't force you to have to change your job or the tasks that you have to do. It just changes the way in which you approach. And changing that way, but first changing that perspective on what your options are can make all the difference. Yeah, the power of a great question, basically. Okay, great. Thank you for sharing that. I really think that's a great perspective. Okay, the other thing that I thought was interesting is, and, and I'm very curious about is, you said that you were doing all these different kind of experiments. So I'd like to get some insight here as to what you did break down. Okay. Here's some that I'm assuming you said, okay, I heard about this and then I heard about this. What was kind of your methodology? Like, where did you go looking for possible experiments to do one two? what did you try that worked? What did you try that didn't, which I guess is an A and B two A and B <laughs> and then three, what are you still doing? That's actually working. And four caveat again, some stuff works for some people. Some stuff works for others. We're all different, but that's what this show is for. So I hope you can follow one, two, a, b, e, and three and four. Four doesn't concern you. That's the listener's problem. <laughs> yeah. You, you and the audience, I guess, will keep me honest on this one. But like, where did I find the ideas? What worked? What didn't work? What am I still doing today? Okay. So where did I find stuff? I mean, it seems a little bit nuts, but like if somebody somewhere said that something would or feel better, I put it in the backlog. 
So I was reading at the time, I was reading, I don't know, 100, 150 books a year, just as everything I could get my hands on. I was reading like neuroscience, psychology, mindfulness. I'm not ashamed to say like tons of self-help. I've probably read most of the self-help books that have come out in the last chunk of time. I was reading like memoirs from CEOs, productivity books, corporate strategy books, all of it, just all this stuff constantly was funneling into my head, a bunch of different podcasts. And the more that I kind of talked to people about the things that I was trying to, uh, to do and the experimentation I was doing, people would just start coming to me with stuff. Hey, I heard about this like Wim Hof stuff. Have you tried that? You know, I hear intermittent fasting is a big thing. Have you tried that? And it was just this like constant cycle of, I would say probably every one to two week cycles, I probably had three or four experiments on the go and I kept a log. It's not like perfectly scientific. I can't like guarantee that this thing I was doing for sure led to this outcome I was having. But it was pretty clear as I was going through like, hmm, this thing's not working for me great. That thing, you know, is working for me a lot better. I'll do the um, ones that didn't work because you know, they're funnier, I think. And there are tons of like way more things that I tried that were just not totally right for me. Like you said, there's lots of things that are great for other people. So I mean, this is not a commentary of like, this doesn't work. And I'm not a doctor and I'm not a psychologist. So I can't tell you what to deploy in your life. Just for me, the stuff that didn't work. I read this awesome book on the impact of your microbiome on the way that you're thinking and feeling. And uh, in it, the author, uh, who was uh, himself originally a doctor, talked about like the benefits of the microbiome that exists on the outside of your body. And when we shower with all the soap and products that we use, we're stripping it away. And that can have a big impact on your mood, behavior, all this kind of stuff. So yada, yada, yada. I stopped with soap. So I still wash my hands. Right. But I went like no shampoo, not really using soap on most of the parts of my body. I'll spare you the details, but like bare minimum on the soap front. This was an obvious non-starter. Probably shouldn't have even started with the thing. I made it like four days, you know, before I was just like, ah, oh, this isn't going great. Like whether it's going to help my microbiome or not, like I'm not enjoying the way that I feel. I am self-conscious walking around people. So that one lasted about four days, a very common one that a lot of people are into. And again, no comment that this is right or wrong. It's just my experience. Um, I was intermittent fasting for over a year. I thought it was going to be a habit that was going to stick with me. But for me personally, with my lifestyle, I've got two young kids, pretty active. Um, I found that intermittent fasting turned into like intermittent feeding. Like I was just trying to jam the calories in inside of my eating window as much as I possibly could. That I just was, I was eating like nonstop all the time, lots of calories just to fit it into this window here. And I realized that, I don't want to say stress, but like the mental load of, can I eat yet? What am I going to eat? Well, how do I work my schedule around the times that I need to eat? Because I know at a certain time in the evening, that's it. There's no more eating and I have to get enough calories in. It was a big mental overhead. So I, I stopped with that one. And uh, yeah, maybe I'll pick it up again one day, but that one kind of went by the wayside. We talked about therapy. This is a big one. I can't talk about it enough. You know, I, I think for me, a huge learning there was, First of all, that I'm happy to see that this is starting to become a thing that people talk a lot more about. It's fantastic. You know, it's it's not just for people who can't handle their stuff as I used to think it was. It's an incredible resource for folks. I learned that it's it's a really great preventative tool. They say like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You don't have to have a particular acute issue that you're trying to deal with. Just having a therapist to help you work through some stuff. A person who, you know, is going to listen to you and not judge is, is super helpful. 
went deep on meditation, still do that one to this day, every single day, 20 minutes every day. Lots of great books out there on that. I, I find it really helps me be a lot more self-aware of how I'm thinking, why I'm doing and what that's, uh, how that's showing up in the rest of my life. I go for a lot of books, absolutely no destination. That was a big one. Prioritization. I prioritize three big bets every single week. It feels like I'm going to be doing less stuff, but these three things move forward significantly. It changed the way that I prioritize kind of three big bets. And then we talked about it a little bit, like this question of how do I want it to feel? It's like one of the most regular questions I ask myself, the people I work with, the folks I coach, this was something that I never really thought about doing. And it is a huge habit, part of my like, Every single day it comes up. I'm going to get on a podcast with Eric. What do I want this to feel like for me, for him, for the people that are going to listen? And just a little bit of time up front is, is like hugely, hugely helpful. So maybe that would be an example of a, of a couple. I think I just told you ones that are still working that I'm doing today. So maybe I doubled up there. Yeah. No. And I mean, that's, that's great. So it's, it's good to hear that some of those stick. You mentioned big bets. What do you identify the word bet as in that scenario? Yeah. Funny. Anytime I talk about, I should have predicted this one. I get asked this question a lot. It's a bit of circular logic, but it, it works. For me, three big bets is about, I pick three relatively sizable impacts I want to have by the end of the week. I want to have a great podcast as an example. It could be one of the big bets. Classic follow-up question to that is, well, how big is a big bet? The answer is big enough that you can only do three and no bigger. So I find that when I look at something and I say, okay, I'm going to do a podcast with Eric, that's going to be my big bet. What else do I have to accomplish this week? How much work is going to go into this thing with Eric? Is that really a big bet? It's kind of dependent on the other things I'm trying to accomplish in the week. But I pick three relatively sizable things. And I tell myself or ask myself, if I accomplish nothing else by the end of the week, but these three things, will I still consider the week successful? If the answer is no, they're probably the wrong things. If the answer is yes, they're probably the right things. And then I am pretty maniacal about making sure that those things get significant priority over everything else that might be going on throughout the week. Okay, that makes sense. Now, some people would take it a step further and say, okay, now those are those three things for this week. How do I make sure that I, I don't know, move the needle on all three of those daily or mostly daily? There can be, I mean, I think there would be, it'd be acceptable to say, okay, here's a day, here's here's Tuesday, for example, Monday's Monday, but here's Tuesday and I'm only going to push the needle on two of them because the third thing, there's something that I can't really do till I get something back or I don't know, variables, variables, life is filled with them. And so, but you're saying having that overarching for the week and ideally not leaving it till the end of the week to do all of it, you're breaking it down, you've, you've done the kind of projectization, if you will, of those three things, those bets. I think what's a bit different is, yes, I do that. And it's probably more, you know, atomic habits like approach driven than it would be kind of project managing workflow driven, meaning before I start the week, I have a habit of just kind of looking at my week and making sure like I'll look at my calendar. Have I blocked out enough time for the work that I need to do on these big bets to make them happen? Because if my calendar does not reflect my priorities before I start, it's definitely not going to reflect them once I get into the week. And, you know, six, seven, eight times out of 10, the schedule doesn't survive Monday. But at least the chunking is done. And I see, okay, Tuesday is when I'm going to spend a bunch of time on this big bed. And then Wednesday will be this one. And Friday afternoon will be that one. At least I know that when something changes, I'm moving off of a plan. I use plan loosely. I'm moving off of a structure 
that was likely to see me accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. So now if I'm going to change it, I just need to make sure that I consider that as I'm going forward. So you've taken all of these different things that you've learned and experimented with and accumulated knowledge, experience, and it's not just, you know, knowledge, it is experience, it's lived experience, you you experimented, but then also you were doing these things. And again, you found that the impact that it was having in your professional life, I'm sure personal life too, but especially in the professional life, your coworkers, your team members, they were making comments. In other words, they were noticing a change enough that they were saying, hey, you've got to collect all this together. And so that's what started this process of the book. Obviously, there's a lot going into the book in this early, you know, working it out phase. And you've got some different, you know, lessons and things like that. I'd love for you to share maybe some of the key pieces so far that you've gotten locked in as far as the book is concerned. Yeah, for sure. So the the book is like super great progress. I'm feeling really good about where it's at. Like it's again, in quotations, like the concepts are locked in. You know, I know exactly what I'm going to talk about. The book is written. It's in kind of that late stage of, you know, massaging, making it sound the best it can possibly sound. And so we can definitely talk about a couple. I think the kind of lead into it is this idea that we're kind of seeing something very unprecedented right now as it relates to work. So for the first time ever, If you survey employees, you're going to find that the number one consideration, not for everybody, but if you look at like across the board, you know, what's showing up most often, number one consideration is balance. It's above salary. People care more about their balance than their bank account today. I don't think this has ever happened in history. The challenge is that companies and people, I think, are still trying to figure out how to actually make this happen. And if you look at more data, you know, my take on it is like work isn't really working right now. The vast majority of people have burned out at least once in their current job. Stats are something like 80%. Like something like 75, 77% of people are disengaged from their jobs. You know, quiet quitting is a, is a constant terminology. Productivity is declining. Uh, the fastest risk that we're, we've ever seen it in as long as we've been recording this stuff, which goes back to 1948. And so what I wanted to do is put something together that would help anybody, regardless of how they feel about their jobs right now. So if you love your job right now and you're looking to grow, or there's some aspects of your job that you don't really love and you want to change, like same resource is what I wanted to put together. And the key insight is that we really have to look at like how we're working day to day. That's the thing that leads to lasting change. And the interesting test we talked about experimentation that I was doing, it's kind of almost as if the world has run a really great experiment on how to work. And the data coming out of that for me feels really clear. We had a lot of people leave their jobs, go to other places or resign entirely as part of the great resignation. If you look now, poll these folks, roughly 80% say that they regret the move. You also have a lot of people who are quietly quitting. So they're pulling back at work, doing the minimum amount possible with the theory that that's going to give them more space for the rest of their lives. And it absolutely is. Um, If you look at the data there, it shows that, yes, they're getting more time um, for other things in their life, but it's not leading to the impact of feeling better overall. Only about a third of people feel like they're thriving right now. And stress at work is higher now, even with people pulling back, than it was at the peak of the pandemic, which was a pretty stressful time for folks. And so this other way that I'm keying in on is this missing step of not just looking only at what we're doing or how long we're doing it for, but really honing in on like, how are we working? And the idea is about getting practical about working smarter, not harder, which is a terminology that everybody has probably heard before. The challenge I found is like, nobody tells you what to do with that. 
Like I don't wake up in the morning and think to myself, I have these things to get done. I'm going to do them in the dumbest possible way I can think about. We're all trying to do it the best ways that we can. But until I kind of broke my life down into a set of experiments to figure out how can I actually work smarter than 100, I didn't know what to do, right? And so that's where this book comes in. It's like a highly tactical set of the most common challenges that we're seeing that have kind of gone through my own testing round, working with my clients, et cetera. The first kind of key insight there is first thing you need to do is you need to create more space for yourself. Anytime you think about like your growth, enjoying your job more, having a bigger impact, there's a lot of important self-reflection work that needs to go in there. Oftentimes people tell you to start with yourself. And I love the idea of working on yourself, but to really truly get introspective and think deeply about what's going on in your life, you need to give that time and space. It's not an easy thing to do. You're not going to do it off the side of your desk at 11 o'clock when you just finished dealing with the kids and email and whatever, right? It needs space. This is like time and space that most of us don't actually have. So the first step you need to do is you need to find a way to create some more space. And you can do this by avoiding the most common workplace slowdowns. Basically free up your time, have the exact same impact, but have that impact with less effort. And I thought that's where we could kind of focus is like this idea of how do I accomplish five days of work in four days without working, you know, all those hours crammed into the four days? Like how am I actually generally going to work smarter? Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you enjoy Beyond the To-Do List, I invite you to check out Best Laid Plans. I'm Sarah Hart Unger, the host of Best Laid Plans, a podcast devoted to all things planning and planning adjacent. I talk about everything from paper planner reviews to deep dives into all things productivity from keeping track of goals and tasks to fitting in your true priorities and reducing the stress around planning and organizing across different areas of life. I am a practicing physician and mother of three, so I have a lot going on in my own life and am intimately familiar with the time constraints that impact us all. And I love sharing my own productivity strategies and learning from others who have their own ideas to share. I invite you to check out Best Laid Plans, available on all podcast platforms, or visit my website, theshoebox.com, T-H-E-S-H-U-B-O-X dot com to learn more. And honestly, that ties into the four-day work week that a lot of businesses have done, I will say, successful experimentation with. One, for example, that I have a partnership with is Blinkist, and I actually hosted a webinar where we walked through their findings from that. I bet I can find that and link up to that in the show notes for this episode. So. I'd love to hear it. I'd love to hear it. Um, there's lots of great stuff out there on it for sure. I think it's very much just the tip of the spear of companies right now that are trying it out. You know, there's a lot of beauty that you get from having a forcing function, 
when you have to do five days of work in four, you have no choice but to figure it out. It's a lot harder when you're the only person at your company trying to do five days of work in four because it always kind of, it'll slip out and, and drag out. And I think a lot of companies are worried to go that route because their concern, our productivity is going to drop. And so what I'm excited about to like share with folks and to put in the book, et cetera, is like, here are tactical, tangible tactics that you, you can do these things and I can show you how this will help you accomplish the same amount of work. It's just going to do it in way less time. And whether the company decides to go to four day work weeks or not, kind of everybody there can be working a lot smarter, not harder. And everyone's going to love that. It'll be more productive. People will feel better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So how do we jump into this idea? How do we engage with this and, and implement it? Yeah, we'll start with a game pretty much everybody I think has played before. I- I'm sure you've tried this. You ever play like Broken Telephone as a kid? You've got kids. Have you watched them play it? So for anyone out there who hasn't played it before, you know, very uh, common game for younger kids, though you can play with adults, the same thing happens. You basically line up the kids. You tell the first kid a message. That first kid whispers the message to the second kid, second kid to the third kid, da 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 da, all the way down the line until the last kid shouts out something ridiculous like purple monkey dishwasher. You know, it sounds nothing like whatever the first kid said. So we all play this. And to me, this is one of the most interesting things that happens in school. So one of the most important things that we do as human beings is communicate with each other. I'm talking to you right now. I'm talking to people at work all the time. Communication is critical. And yet here is a game that we are taught about in school where we all have a big giant laugh about how incredibly bad we are at communicating with each other down a line. And the teacher or adults just say, hey, isn't that funny? And we move on with our day. And no one says, here's how you can solve this problem. Here's how to communicate really effectively. Because by the way, you're going to be doing this for the rest of your life. And if you extrapolate from grade school, you say, ah, Jay, that's like a, I don't know, you're being a bit pedantic there. Like it doesn't really have any major impact. But if you dive into the research, it does. United States of America alone is wasting $1.2 trillion on workplace miscommunications every year. There are only 14 countries on this planet who are producing more, meaning their GDPs are higher than the amount of money that the United States of America is wasting miscommunicating with each other. Staggering figure. You might say, fine, 1.2 trillion, that's inaccessible, I don't know what to do with that. Run the numbers. If you run it all the way down to um, every individual employee, what that works out to is 1.2 trillion is effectively a full lost day of productivity for every single working person. Not quit, right? We all kind of have this kind of stuff. We work on something you hand it in, turns out this wasn't the right thing. You go back and forth in a meeting that's very frustrating trying to explain a thing. It's just not landing in the right way. Or you have follow-up meeting after follow-up meeting after follow-up meeting. None of these things feel that big in the moment. Maybe it's costing you 15 minutes or an hour or 20 minutes here. The point is, is when you add these all up over the course of a work week, they're adding up to roughly a full day's loss of productivity. And the challenge there is this idea I like to talk about, about the difference and it invisible miscommunication. Visible miscommunications are really easy. Our brains are incredible, visible miscommunication identifiers. I say a thing to Eric. Eric doesn't understand what the heck I'm talking about. His eyebrows go down. His head cocks to the side. He looks at me funny. And immediately I realize that thing I just said to him bounced off his forehead. He's got no clue what's coming out of my mouth. I back up. I try again. The visible miscommunications aren't the ones that are causing problems for us. It's the invisible miscommunications. These are the ones where I say a thing. Eric perfectly understands the words that I said to him, but the way that he interprets it is different than the way I intended it. And these are invisible because there's no way for us to know. 
without taking some kind of a step. Sometimes we'll ask what, in my opinion, is one of the most unhelpful questions we can ask people. Hey, Eric, did you understand that? Does this make sense? The problem is that the answer to that question is yes, it made perfect sense to Eric. Yes, he understood. If we go back to the game of broken telephone and I stop and ask every kid, do you understand what was just said to you? They will say yes. And they're passing along the wrong message. So it's not about if understood. It's about what understanding you took away. And the key insight here is that communication does not end when the words leave our mouths. We tend to spend a lot of time thinking about how am I going to say this thing? I have to give a presentation or write an email or I'm going to communicate a thing to Eric. We think about the words we're going to use. We don't think about the way they're going to be interpreted. So instead of thinking that communication ends when the words leave my mouth, instead what you can think is communication actually ends when I hear my own words repeated back to me. And the fix is pretty simple. If you look at some of the highest risk professions where miscommunication doesn't lead to like lost hours, it can lead to loss of life, military, healthcare, high voltage power folks, they have a solve for this. It's called different things in different places. I didn't come up with the terminology in the military. They call it a brief back, basically a repetition back of what you've heard. It works because it makes an invisible miscommunication entirely visible. If Eric tells me what he took away from my communication to him, I can then listen to it, goes into my ear, and I can verify that that is actually what I was trying to say to him. And so the question I had was, okay, I'm seeing all of this miscommunication happening. I know it's wasting a lot of time for me and my colleagues. There's a perfectly good solution for it out there. Why is this not happening in the office? The reason why, it's incredibly awkward. It's not a thing that feels good. You need to understand how to approach it. And I tried a lot of the wrong ways. I'll try a brief back this way, this way, that way. What if I describe it like this? And it just sometimes it will land, sometimes it will not. What I learned is there's a really good way to do it and a really, really not good way to do it. The good way is something like this. Can you let me know what you took away from this conversation? Because I want to make sure that I did a good job getting my point across to you. The key here is I'm keeping entirely focused on me. I'm not talking about your ability to listen. I'm talking about my ability to communicate. And so I'm checking to make sure that I did a good job. The alternative there is I say something to you. Hey, Eric, can you repeat what I just said to you? I want to make sure you were listening. Super condescending. People aren't going to work, want to work with you. You sound like a jerk. All those things are true. I think you just have to find the right way to articulate it. And when you keep it completely centered on yourself, it winds up being very safe. I've done this with many teams I've worked on. I coach many folks on it. Pretty quickly, it just becomes a cultural norm. Eric, can you brief me back on it? We all know what it means. Nobody's trying to step on each other's toes. But this super simple step, what does it take you like five to eight seconds to say this out loud? It takes, you know, Eric or the other person 15 seconds to repeat it back. You know, I think what you just told me is X, Y, and Z. Yeah, Eric, that's totally right. We nailed it. Let's go about our days. So we invested 30 seconds in saving a miscommunication. Alternatively, uh, no, Eric, I didn't mean X, Y, and Z. I meant A, B, and C. We just saved ourselves a massive amount of time down the road with such a small, simple step. And I used to think I was a highly effective communicator until I started doing briefbacks. And I realized when I was doing them, somewhere between five and six times out of 10, my message was not landing in the way that I intended it to land, even though my words were quite, in my opinion, quite clear. Because human beings are different, they just land differently with different people. And you want to make sure that you do that check. 
I can say a lot of different things right here right now about signal to noise ratio or the fact that we're all different. We come from different places, different stories, different different languages we speak, different perspectives, and we're all gifted with like I've got a microphone literally right now as we are talking. The funny thing is, is that I'm going to talk literal and metaphorical at the same time. So right now I'm talking to Jason and I'm using my microphone. I also am wearing headphones so I can hear what he says back to me. But we all have different ways slash styles slash whatever you want to call it. In other words, our human tech of our microphone and our headphones or speakers are unique to ourselves And then take that and throw that into the literal world of tech with actual microphones and actual headphones and tech issues. So we've got all these different variables. It's no surprise to me. And I was a communication major. So comm theory, this is my like sci-fi geek out moment. Like I'm 100% with you on this, that this is a huge thing when it comes to work and working together as teams, but also in relationships across the board, home, work, friends, family, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it works equally well outside of the office. I'll give you a classic, classic example inside of the office because people can look out for this kind of thing. You and I are talking in a meeting. You have to go and get something done for whatever reason. I'm the one that's setting the deadline at that. Great, Eric, can you have that done, please, by the end of the day? End of day. End of day is a term that we use all the time. What does that mean? Does that mean your end of day? My end of day? Is it the calendar end of the day? Is it 1159? Yeah. (laughs) If I get it to you before 9 a.m. the next day, is that okay? Everybody interprets this idea of end of day very, very differently. And there's a big difference between, you know, I got 10 minutes before I have to leave to be able to go pick up my kids and do a thing. And someone says, can you get this to me by end of day? And what they meant is, I just need to have this in my inbox before I open it in the morning is very different than I need this right now. Like this is mission critical. Something's going to explode if we don't do this right in this moment. And so end of day is one of these examples of we use the term all the time. We often don't mean exactly the same thing. And if I brief you back on something like that, you know, Eric could say to me, I think what you need me to do is make sure I get this to you before I go to bed tonight. Whoa, 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 Eric. Sorry. I need this in like end of day, five o'clock, close of business right now. That's when I need it. Or you know what? Tonight's not important. I have a meeting in the morning from nine until 10. I just need this to be the first thing I'm doing in the morning. You know, 10 o'clock tomorrow morning would be totally fine. Great. Quick clarification. We're on the same page. You know, this is a great example of what you were talking about where same words, two different people, two different interpretations. They're not wrong. It's not like you've heard me wrong or you interpret incorrectly. It's just different. And that's the thing that we're trying to do is make sure that whatever I'm communicating to you, I'm aligning the intent with you. I'm making sure that my intention was aligned. And the only way I can do that is to get you to repeat it back to me. And you can use it the other way as well. You know, if Eric says something to me, I could say, Eric, just want to make sure I heard you correctly. I think what you just told me is X, Y, and Z. Again, you keep it about you. You don't want to say, Eric, I want to make sure that you communicated this well. That's not going to feel great for Eric. You're kind of putting him down while you're doing it. So just keep it very focused on you. You know, when you're asking someone for a brief back, I want to make sure I did a good job communicating my point to you. Can you let me know what you took away? And when you're trying to make sure that you're aligned with somebody else who just spoke to you, hey, I want to make sure that I heard you in the way that you intended. I think what you just told me is X, Y, and Z. You keep it focused on you, becomes a lot less awkward. You're doing everybody a huge favor. It will literally save you hours 
every single week that will just vanish or you'll fill them with other work. We can talk about that later if you want, but they'll just completely vanish. You'll have the exact same impact, but you'll spend less effort doing it and you'll be substantially less frustrated as you're going through because the miscommunication won't be happening anymore. Yeah. For me, identifying, I, I would label this in my mind as a, like a time leak. It's where time leaks out because you have to, you then, if you didn't do it in the first place, if you didn't take the five, 10, 30 seconds it takes to do that brief back right up front, then you get so far down the path that then you've got to turn around on the path, come all the way back. And ideally, yeah, some of the stuff that you've already done now is not wasted time, but honestly, often it is. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just a quick check. You know, it's, it, and you just have to get past. The first time, if you've never tried this before and you want to go and try, which I highly recommend, it will catch like wildfire in your office. And once it does, it'll become much simpler. But the first time you want to try it, it is going to feel awkward. And I think just recognizing that because it's not a common thing we do day to day. You're not going to be out for lunch with your friends and they're like, I'm going to have the Caesar salad. You're like, let me just make sure that I understood your point correctly. Are you saying you want the Caesar salad? Eric's going to be like, Jay, what's like, have you been drinking while we're having the salad? <laughs> It's a, it's a little different outside of, you know, in social situations, but specifically in work when we're trying to accomplish something, making sure that we're communicating it with each other and aligned is, is mission critical and it's a relatively quick check. All right. That's one lesson. Let's talk about, you said you had a second one. Let's do that one. Sure. If I came onto this podcast and didn't talk about something to do with prioritization, you'd probably never want to see you or have me back again. <laughs> so I think that's probably a, a good spot to focus. So. Probably folks who listen to your podcast already know this, but I'll, I'll state the obvious just because, you know, important to kind of ground in the right spot. Multitasking like really doesn't work when we try to do many things at the same time. There's some really great research out there. If, if you really feel like looking into it, the one that really blows my mind away is um, if you have your messaging opened. So you have Slack uh, or whatever chat you use, uh, Teams, you have your emails kind of open on the side of your desk. Just having them open and knowing that they're open and that there's messages coming in, whether you're replying to them or not, it drops your IQ by 10 points. This is twice the impact of smoking marijuana. And I do not recommend this, but you are better off cognitively showing up to work high than having your messages open while you're working. Please do not show up to work high. I am not making that recommendation, but it's just like an unbelievable thing that like, it overloads our brains in a way and like trying to do too many things at once doesn't work. A little bit less known, but still something that is talked about. You know, if you, if you really do go deep on the kind of prioritization productivity space, as I know you guys do, we are as human beings susceptible to something called the planning fallacy. So we have a tendency to think things will take a lot less time than they actually do. So we expect to get way more done than we actually can. We don't wind up getting it all done because we never could have in the first place because we overscoped ourselves. So we get less done and we stress more about it. If we allocated a lot better and actually lived that allocation, we could feel better, do better. There's some great work from Calvin Newport. He wrote Deep Work, awesome books that shows that it's about 20%. So we will over allocate ourselves by about 20%, which is a really big impact. I don't want to be 20% over allocated. Like that's not going to feel good. And so as I started to look at this one, they wanted to understand, like, how do you tell the difference between a distraction and something you could be working on? Like, what is a distraction? And the interesting thing is, like, a distraction is incredibly context dependent. People will sometimes say, like, you shouldn't work on email, you know, during the day. Sometimes 
writing an email is the single most important thing you have to do that day. And that email is incredibly important. Other times, like when you're sitting in a meeting trying to learn something or talk to somebody, maybe not the best time for email. Exact same activity, whether or not it's a distraction is highly context dependent. And so what I think happens is that a distraction is basically when we do something that we later on realize we should have said no to. So it wasn't the top priority and we went and we did this thing. Super challenging. Why is that happening? How do I get pulled into distractions? There's a lot of good cognitive science on this. Your brain craves distractions. You get the dopamine hit when there's something new. Like our brains are working against us to stay focused. But I think, again, that's, you know, maybe more behavioral psych than, than we want to get out there. But if you dive into this, what you see is like your podcast has covered tons of this. There's a lot of great stuff on the act of prioritization, figuring out what your priorities are, structures to keep them, you know, in your head, to do less, all sorts of other tactics, which are great but in my opinion, incomplete. My experience is that we're pretty good at knowing what we think we need to do. Most people will usually know their top few priorities. I talked about, you know, the three big bets. Some people might pick one. You might call it something different. You know, a lot of people are pretty good at figuring out this is what's important um, for me. What the kind of tactics that are out there that help you do this kind of prioritization are, are, are missing a little bit is that prioritization, in my opinion, is psychological. So we're social animals as humans. We like to get along as much as we possibly can. We have an inherent desire to help other people, which effectively means we want to say yes. The result is we don't often say no, even when we know we should. Eric's asking me to do a thing. I'm like, oh man, I already have too many things to do. I don't want to say no to him. He's going to think I'm not really trying very hard. I'm going to let him down, blah, 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 blah. I say yes. And I take this already over allocated week, thanks to the planning fallacy, and I jam even more on top. Super challenging problem. Reason why, like, not doing something in my experience is way harder than doing it, right? It's like that old saying, like, don't think about a white elephant. If the first snip pops in your head, probably everybody listening to this is now thinking of a white elephant. Even though you've probably heard that a hundred times, you can't stop yourself from thinking. Like, not thinking something is much harder than thinking it. So... It's not a better to-do list that I think we need in some cases. It's a better psychology to actually say no. When something pops up, we think it's probably a distraction or it's not aligned with our top priorities. How do we actually say no to another human being without all of the like guilt and, you know, challenge around that particular idea? What usually winds up happening is we're not going to say no naturally until the pain of taking on something more is so unbearable that it overrides the social pain of saying no. Like I'm at my limit. I literally can't imagine a way to put anything else. I'm really stressed out. Eric asked me to do with that's when I'm primed to say no. But we want to be able to say no like substantially earlier without getting to that tipping point. So the real question for me is how am I going to do this? How do I actually say no better? Just like broken telephone where we're teaching in school that we're not going to communicate, but no one's teaching what we actually do about it. There isn't a lot out there that's teaching us, like, how do you actually say no better? The first step, mission critical, you got to get your priorities clear. We talked about that earlier. I have my three bigger bets. Eric has probably shared a million different tips in this podcast from previous episodes that you could use to help you get your priorities clear. Once they're clear, what you can do to make saying no a lot easier is just shift the question around. Instead of saying no, you can try saying, what do you think instead? which is much easier. It's way less scary. So instead of saying, no, Eric, I won't do that. We're going to replace no with what do you think? So examples, 
Eric asks me to do a thing. Hey, Eric, I'm prioritizing, insert my priorities here, which feel the most impactful for me right now. Do you see it differently? Hey, Eric, I'm prioritizing X, Y, and Z right now. You know, what would happen if I got back to you by this time instead of that time? Hey, Eric, I'm prioritizing X, Y, Z right now. Is there somebody else that can do that? What we're doing with these kinds of questions is we're asking people to input on our priorities. And the beautiful thing about this is it's a win-win every time. The vast majority of the time, this person asking you to do this thing is going to say no to themselves, right? You're going to say X, Y, and Z is more important, I think. What do you think? And they're going to say, I didn't realize those things were your priorities. You're right. Those things are the priority. Or I really have to focus on X, Y, and Z. Is there someone else? Oh, yeah, you know what? I could go and ask, you know, Jenny in, in accounting to take care of this. She'll be able to do it. Great. That's like the vast majority of the time you will together collaborate on your prioritization and you will never be in that sticky situation of having to outright say no to somebody. The times when that doesn't happen, hey, I'm prioritizing X. I think that's the most impactful thing for me to do right now. How do you think about that? Jay, this thing's really important. We really need to get it done. I think it's more important than X. You just got fantastic feedback on your prioritization. And it might be that that thing that they're bringing to you is actually more important, but you're going to take time together to figure out whether that's true and make a conscious decision to move on to it rather than just piling it onto your already over the plate. It makes sense, man. I, I think just using these two things, the communication piece and or the brief back piece, I should say, and the priorities Gosh, I can't wait till your book's done or out. I should say out <laughs> because there's so much more that impact that can be made than just those two things. But if people just take those two things from this conversation and even maybe some of the experiment stuff that works or didn't work and, and, and all of that, <laughs> that and even just taking time to, you know, find out how things feel, or I should say identify and intentionally plan slash design getting work done based on how we want it to feel as we get it done. Jason, you've shared a lot of great insights and resources. And of course, again, I want to recall people coming back around to pre-ordering the book as well as getting in on your newsletter as you parse out lessons from the book over the journey to the release of the book. So if you wouldn't mind, share with us where people can find out, one, more about you and more about the book and jump on board. Yeah, cool. Thanks, Eric. And uh, like, I'd love for people to try these. You try them out. I'd love it. You have feedback. You know, I, I've seen this work for lots of folks. They definitely feel like, well, this seems obvious. They're the kinds of things that feel obvious in retrospect. Yeah. You know, you got to unpack them for a while, but would love you to just give them a shot. You know, really try to the brief back, see how that actually impacts and how often it's coming up that what you think you wanted someone to understand and what they actually understood were different and see how much time that can save you. Instead of saying no outright to someone, if you have trouble with that, ask them to input on your priorities. I think I have to prioritize X. You know, what do you think about this? It's a great way to bridge that gap without having to say no. And then, like you said, like I'm pushing hard to get the book done, like the content's done. It's publishing goes in the way that it goes. And so I was really excited to try to get this newsletter out. Everyone can go to the website. It's qcibook.com. Stands for quietly crushing it book there. You can read all about the book. You can read all the tactics. You can get in touch with me. Would love feedback. Big thing I would love for everyone to do. It'd be a huge help for me. It'll be great feedback and, and some techniques for you. You can click there uh, to sign up for the newsletter. It's totally free to sign up. When you do, uh, you're going to get a, a couple of things. You'll hear from me every week with a very specific tactic that's going to help you do or feel better in your week. It's very short. It's two minutes, so it's not going to be obtrusive uh, in your inbox. 
Number two, you'll get a preview chapter. So I'm going to send you an actual chapter from the book. Um, it's kind of fun. You're going to be able to read it before and after it's published. So you get to see what the progression looks like, a little bit of like how the sausage um, is made. It's going to go through tactics like we talked about today. How do I do five days of work in four? You get a, pr- a free preview chapter. And anybody who's subscribed when the book does come out, you know, hopefully next year sometime, is going to get a, a discount on the book as well for being a subscriber. Um, so would love to have folks jump on the newsletter, share feedback with me. You can get it at qcibook.com. Awesome. That is so cool. And consider myself subscribed. I haven't yet done it, but I'm about to as soon as we're done talking. <laughs> as soon as we hang up, I will be doing that myself. So Jason, thank you so much for sharing and giving us your insight, your perspective. It's very helpful. And again, that's why we do this show. So Jason, thank you so much for talking with us. And I think, you know, once the book's out, we can dip into some other stuff from the book next time around. Yeah, it's my absolute, absolute pleasure. You know, I've been listening to the podcast for a long time. So to have a chance and come on here and, and, you know, talk to you in the audience is like an absolute treat for me. You know, really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to come on. Great to have a chat. Would love to come back. We get a little bit closer to the book coming out. But in the meantime, would love to have anybody from here jump on the newsletter. I know the audience is like very adept at prioritization, productivity. I'm sure there'd be some great feedback to come from there. And I'd I'd love to see what everyone thinks of of the other ideas from the book. So thank you so much for having me. Can't say thank you enough. And I'll look forward to the next time we get a chance to connect. Awesome. Thanks. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Jason Silver as much as I did. Thank you so much for listening. And again, if you enjoyed this conversation, if you got something out of it, definitely consider signing up for his newsletter. You can find that at the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com. That's also the place that you'll find all the other show notes for previous episodes. You can follow the show if you're not subscribed and getting new episodes as they release. And that's also where you can do me the favor of sharing this episode with somebody you know needs to hear it. Hit the share button over at beyondthetodolist.com or right here in the very app you're listening to this. Thank you so much for sharing. Thanks again for listening. And I will see you next episode. <laughs>